We praise you, Father, for the light that you've given, and we thank you for the message that we have sung here together today as your church. We thank you that you have tuned our voices to sing your praise, and we pray in behalf of those who know not Christ that you draw them to that light, and for those that have that light within, we rejoice. We praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, whose face shines your glory, and who is our Savior and Lord. Now, before the word, we bow and we ask, Lord, that for the teaching of the Spirit, that you would help us to understand the truth of your word and draw us to Christ. Through his name and for his glory, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The Corinthians were a total wreck. The people the Apostle Paul met in that decadent Greek city led morally corrupt and twisted lives. To varying degrees and in numerous ways, they were sexually deviant. We read in these two books to the Corinthians of adultery, of homosexuality, of prostitution at pagan temples. Some were thieves and swindlers. So greedy to make money, they cared not who they harmed in the process. They were drunkards. Some of them very likely stumbling home from pagan temples or drinking themselves to sleep at night in their homes. Some used their power and their influence in abusive ways, committing shameful atrocities against others. That's who they were. If you'd met them, let's go back, let's say, to 45 AD, and you went back, you would be tempted to write them off as hopeless degenerates, lost in spiritual darkness, and morally corrupt to the bone. Well, in fact, that's exactly who they were, except for the hopeless part. Hope arrived in Corinth in the form of news proclaimed by a team led by the Apostle Paul. The team brought news of Jesus the Messiah who was crucified on a Roman cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem just a couple of decades earlier. As prophesied in the Scriptures and as he wielded the Scriptures and taught people in that city, Jesus died as the sacrificial lamb in the place of sinners, in the place of people like the Corinthians and all that they had done wrong and the reputation that they had rightly deserved at that point. As prophesied in Scripture, he rose from the dead, proving God's confirmation of his sacrifice and providing justification, the payment of sin's penalty, securing forgiveness and securing justification for people who had so lived in sin. This message, this word from God, was spiritual light. It's the spiritual light of which we've been singing today. It penetrates the moral darkness that enveloped the Corinthians like a torch penetrating the deepest recesses of darkness in a cave. That good news, that message that someone had brought to them enlightened their hearts. God dawned upon them in that message. As Paul wrote earlier to them, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. They were a wreck. They were degenerate. But that's who they were. Jesus Christ had given them life. The power of God operative in His Word and illumined by His Holy Spirit was the Corinthians' only hope. It was not self-reformation. But it was the transforming power in the light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. What glory, what joy, what had happened in their lives? Rescue had reached them in Corinth. But the enemy never quits. All that had taken place, the transformation that was there, but that just brought false teachers out of the woodwork, as we say. False teachers relentlessly then began to attack Paul's authority as an ambassador of God's truth. They viciously attacked his credibility. They attacked his credentials as a true messenger of God. Where's the proof that you're authentic? We see this and we see that and charges were raised and slanderous ideas expressed. And so a sizable portion of this book of 2 Corinthians is dedicated to a defense of Paul's authority as an apostle in the accuracy of the message that he preached. We come today to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians and these malicious charges leveled against Paul are close to the surface. And he stresses the transforming power of the gospel that he preached to the Corinthians. This is the sign of his authenticity. This is the sign of the genuineness of the message that was preached. And he knows that the attack on him is ultimately an attack on that gospel message. It's an attack on the saving work of Christ. We might stop here and say, well, what difference does this make with us? This is not our challenge. We're not dealing with such accusations. What difference does this make? Why should we care about the troubles that Paul faced with his opponents? I think the reason is because Eden Baptist Church faces the same kind of pressure. The pressure to alter the message that we preach to fit the expectations of the world around us. The beliefs and the values of a culture that is a moral wreck is ever-present. And there are those voices within Christendom who call upon us to adjust the message, to take the Word of God, to read it differently, to present it differently so that we are calibrating our message to the world around us. We face the same challenge. But Eden Baptist Church, we must get this. If we do this, 
if we adjust the message of God's Word and calibrate it to our society, we will sacrifice the very power of God. We will turn away from that power. We may grow. We may see more interest in our church. We may seem to accomplish more, but we will sacrifice the power of God. It's in His Word, and it's that Word that transformed them as it drew them to the face of Christ and His saving grace. We can lose the only message on the planet that can liberate sinners and transform souls. Slowly, perhaps, little by little, continuing to make concessions to our world and its expectations, we turn around one day and the power of God is gone. That power to liberate, to save, to transform is not there. And the Bible becomes just a, a history book, a guide to some, if you wish, but not the very Word of God. This is our challenge. This is the danger that is ever before God's people. And so it's vital that we learn from the instruction that Paul gives here to the Corinthian church and learn, I'll just use by way of outline, words of application from these three sections that we'll consider here in these few verses. The first is that we must preach God's Word with integrity. This is always a challenge as well. It was a challenge that Paul faced and succeeded in overcoming this temptation. But he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So generally here in these two verses, Paul responds to attacks against the message that he preached and the methods that he used. Indeed, on the other side of the coin, he's attacking the message that is preached and the methods that are used by those who are false teachers. But his key point in this response is twofold. First, his message. What is it? You see it there in verse 2. An open statement of the truth. The clear straightforward, no hedging about or clouding the true meaning of God's revealed Word. If the Bible speaks of hell and divine judgment, if it says that every soul will one day bow to the knee of Jesus Christ, then Paul preached that. If the Bible says that sexuality is designed by God exclusively for one man and one woman in the bond of lifelong marriage, then Paul preached that. If the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, that salvation is not by works but by grace alone, that our only hope in life and death is Christ, then Paul preached that message. The Bible warns us against idolatries that are latent in money and food and family and possessions and status. Then Paul warned his audience accordingly. He preached the revealed word of God straight up. His method, 
He exercised integrity in every aspect of his ministry. So let's, let's settle for a, a while in these two verses and look at them more carefully. Verse 1, having this ministry, therefore having this ministry, that is the life-transforming, spirit-empowering message of new covenant salvation, chapter 3 and verse 6. I think this is where he's drawing from is chapter 3 and verse 6. Considering the first two verses of chapter 3, if you just look over there, he says, as... Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? There's the credentials he couldn't show to the satisfaction of his opponents. Say, so what, what are my credentials? What document do I come with to say that I have authority from God? It's you, verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And what he means then contextually as the text continues is that the transforming work of the gospel in their lives is all the proof necessary that the Spirit and the Word had come to change their lives, to transform them. So he says, I have this ministry by the mercy of God. A humble recognition that he himself had been enlightened by the gospel and transformed. So we do not lose heart. It's easy to do when you're under relentless attack. When you face pressure to conform your message to the expectations of the day. Well, we don't lose heart. I've received this ministry from God. I don't lose heart. But, verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. That is, secretive, hidden schemes one is ashamed for anyone to find out. He says there in verse 2 that we have refused to practice cunning. That is, trickery, crafty manipulation of others. Using the church, using indeed and twisting God's word to trick others. To push various schemes. We have refused to tamper with God's Word. We've refused to falsify or corrupt the true meaning of Scripture, no matter what people demand. That's the way forward. How did he preach? Again, an open statement of the truth. He read the words of Scripture. He interpreted them accurately according to their original meaning. And he laid out by way of application the implications. That was the straightforward method of proclamation. And so he appealed, verse 2, to his own conscience, to the conscience of his hearers, that as they heard, they would say, that's the meaning of Scripture. That's what God is saying. He delivered the true, pure milk of the Word with integrity and clarity, preaching what God's Word meant not what people expected him to say. Now the idea that he preached the message clearly and accurately and with full integrity did not mean that everyone received that message. And so secondly, and this will take a little time to work out the implication here of this, this line in the outline, but we must not tamper with God's word to avoid its rejection. We can see people reject the gospel reject God's word, and then be pressured to say, well, then we need to adjust it so that it's not so readily rejected. Perhaps we need to retool. Well, notice verse 3. He acknowledges 
that the gospel is rejected. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Every member of Eden Baptist Church must know that people will reject the word of God. That is, speaking it accurately and doing the very best that a human being can do to make it clear and winsome, it will still be rejected. There will be people who turn away from it. We must also determine then that we will not respond to this reality by adjusting the message. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers such that they reject the gospel. We're not going to help God out by adjusting the message to something the lost will welcome. They might welcome it, but it will be empty of the power of God to save. It will be gutted of that power. So, verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The gospel, do you know the word? It speaks of the good news concerning Jesus' provision of salvation. That gospel is veiled. It is covered. It is not seen by those who are perishing. That is, the lost occupy a state of spiritual death. They are perishing and they cannot see this message. This need not be a permanent condition, but it is a real one. Their perishing state, their trajectory is toward a Christless eternity in hell. And it's owing to spiritual blindness. It's not owing to the fact that the church fails to speak their language. Now, it might be. The church needs to speak their language on some level. But that's not the heart of the issue. The need is not to entertain, to get with the times, to prove that we are on the right side of history, as some understand it. To let none of that direct us in how we approach those who are perishing. Because what is really going on is revealed in verse 4. Here's getting behind the scenes to what we don't see in the spiritual realm, but what we know to be the truth. In their case, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. There's a blinding that's going on. The God of this world, literally the God of this age, is a reference to Satan. There's some faithful brothers and sisters that argue that Satan is presently bound according to Revelation 20 and verse 2 and unable to resist the spread of the gospel. This verse is really hard to square with that interpretation. He is the God of this world, the God of this age, who is presently blinding the eyes of unbelievers. But on the other hand, Satan is not literally a god. He's a fallen angel, but he is the operative God. He is the surrogate God of the unbelieving world for now. And this is why I wish the translation would say the spirit of the, uh, the God of this age rather than God of this world. It's true, but he's the God of this time. His days are limited. As such, he actively blinds unbelievers to the light of the gospel. That light is shining, it is glorious, but people yield to Satan's influence. He covers their eyes and they let him. 
they remain, remain blind here, verse 4, to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's a mouthful. But what, it, it, it's helpful to read it by just taking it backwards, where it's all heading is God. God is the creator, the sustainer, the author of life, the final throne before which we must all stand, and Satan blinds them to the reality of God. Then move toward the front of the statement. The incarnate Christ is the image of God. You see that phrase there at the end of verse 4. Christ is the image of God. So they're blinded to God, but moving forward, they're blinded to Christ who is the image of God. That is, Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God, the visible representation of the invisible God to us. Jesus is God's precise expression, His very essence in this world, taking on flesh that we might literally see Him. He is the image of God. He is all that God is in incarnate form. And then moving further yet, the illuminating light of the gospel message reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. So there's this message that comes that enlightens us to see Christ who is the image of God. Satan puts a curtain over all of that. He blinds eyes to that reality. So what do the lost remain blinded to? They remain blinded ultimately to God. They remain blinded to the glory of Christ who is God's exact image and is our only Savior. They remain blinded to this message. Are you tracking with him? He's saying here, we are not going to adjust the message for it is the power of God. It is that message which shines light upon who Christ is, which leads us in reconciliation to God. That is the power of God in that message. We don't tamper with it. And to each one of us, let me say this, in light of this statement, your God is either the God of this age or the God of the age to come. Now, the risen Christ is the Lord of this age as well, of course. But in operative, practical application, Satan drives the ship right now. As far as what people hold to, what they believe, what they desire, and your God is either the God of this age or the God of the age to come. You must choose to honor one. You cannot honor both. And as you choose, know this. Satan is the God of this age. Of this age. His rule is temporal. It will end with the dawn of the new age at Christ's return. Jesus, by contrast, is the all-glorious God of the age to come and of all ages. The age that will never end. So if you are here apart from Christ, if you have not placed your saving faith in Him, if you have no craving in your soul to live in the age to come with Christ, the only reason is that you remain blinded to the splendor of Christ by the God of this age. You're in His hands. Pray that God will save you. 
Pray that He will shine into your heart the glorious light of the good news of Christ crucified and risen. Pray that the veil would be lifted and that you'd see what you can't see. And though I would call you to prayer on that point, I would also say don't sit back on your hands in prayer, but trust. Move toward this light. Long to see it. Trust the message that He has revealed. Reach out and embrace it in dependence upon Him. That He has died as the Lamb of God in sacrifice for sin. That He has risen from the dead. When that light dawns on you, you know you've looked into the face of absolute and eternal beauty. You've seen the face of Jesus. In faith, to know Him is to love Him. To know Him is to know that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and the treasure of our soul forever and ever. Pray to God to show you that truth. Come to Him in trust and faith. You must come humbly. You must come dependently, not trusting in who you are, what you've done, how good you are, or how little bad you are. But trusting in Him alone. Now back to the point. We cannot then adjust our message to the expectations of those who serve a temporal kingdom, a dying, perishing kingdom of a God, small g, who is failing and whose kingdom is soon to be crushed forever. We can't adjust our message to those who are in that world and blinded to the truth of the saving gospel. Adding then thirdly, verses 5-7, through we must then trust the power of God's Word to enlighten the lost. Verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Preachers can proclaim themselves. They can promote themselves and manipulate people by their messages. It's amazing how influential and rich some people have become by doing just that. But Paul says we preach Christ. It is His glory. It is His saving power that we proclaim. Not our worth. Not our agenda. Who am I? Says Paul, I'm here as your servant. I'm here to serve you. He did not enter Corinth to manipulate people, to make money, to spread his reputation. He entered Corinth to serve people, to serve them by proclaiming the straight-up, true, pure message of the gospel and watching God transform the souls of those who heard. He served them by proclaiming that only message that Christ Jesus is Lord. Shorthand for the gospel. Lord pointing to Jesus' resurrection, His ascension, that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 6a, of course, allusion to creation. God said, Let light shine out of darkness. Chapter 1, verse 3, that is a a physical phenomenon at that point, but it is also a spiritual theme that runs through Scripture. And He has indeed shown in our hearts. The one who called light into being has shown in our hearts. Undoubtedly an allusion to Acts chapter 9 and Paul's own conversion where he saw a brilliant light at midday. 
And now Paul has come to Corinth and he's shed the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the message of salvation illumines our souls with a knowledge of God's glory. And that glory is located ultimately in Jesus Christ. It is as if the glory of God shines from the face of Christ. We see that glory and we're changed. We are enlightened in our darkness and given new life in Him. Now verse 7 starts a new section, but we'll consider this verse as it so valuably puts the discussion at hand in perspective. We'll not go on to the continuing of the argument. But he says then in light of all that, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What is this treasure? Contextually, as we work this out, it is the message of Christ crucified and risen. It is the new covenant message of salvation in Jesus, chapter 3 and verse 6. We have been given this ministry. We have this treasure, this life-transforming, saving power of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That is, think, earthen pottery. You just take clay mud... You shape it into something, you put it in the fire, and there it is. It serves you, and man, did it crack a lot and fall apart. You can go to Israel today and find some excavation taking place, some archaeological digging. Those have a pile of pottery out there. You can just take pieces. There's so many of them, even from ancient days. They were everywhere, they were cheap, and they were very fragile. The ministers of the gospel in all our weakness and humility is what's in view here. We are like earthen pots. There's nothing uniquely valuable there, but the treasure inside is this gospel of transforming power. We go about carrying that message as earthen pots. I heard a speaker recently speak of the earthen pot is the body and the treasure inside is how wonderful you are. The earthen pot is not just our body, it's just us. In our weakness, our humanity, we are nothing special. Not in this sense. It's not us, it's not our message, it's not our methods, it's not how great we are that convinces people of salvation. It's the power of the gospel. We carry about that earthen, in our earthen vessel, so to speak, this message of salvation in Christ. And we do so, verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is why it's that way. So think, weak, insignificant people delivering the gospel message to sinners. We can do nothing to remove the satanic veil from people's hearts. I hear the anguish that we talk about from time to time as you talk about a coworker, a neighbor, a relative with whom you shared the gospel time and again, and there's just nothing there. It just doesn't get through. We can do nothing to remove that veil. 
We can do nothing ultimately to persuade sinners to seek forgiveness in Jesus. We can persuade them, but we can't ultimately do so. We can do nothing ultimately to convince anyone of the truth about Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, reign, and return. Really nothing ultimately. We speak the truth. We, the vessel, carry the message But only God can unveil the eyes that are blinded. God uses us as so many crackpots to speak the gospel message. And that message is able to save souls. In His sovereign power, God takes that word and He opens blind eyes and He illumines the spiritual darkness of the soul. It's His work to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So if I'm a clay pot and I look at it that way, I know that the treasure is the gospel message. It's not the person. It's not the method. Again, the person needs to speak accurately. The methods need to be with integrity. Not saying that those are dismissed, but that's not where the power lies. We're just clay pots that carry that power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as the critics of the gospel attack Paul's integrity, he pointed to the transforming power of the gospel in the lives of the Corinthians. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, he says in chapter 3 and verse 2. It's not my credentials. It's not the way that I spoke. It's not how I calibrated the message to what Corinth expected. You, in the transforming power of God, are the evidence. The Corinthians were a mess. And now they were the children of God. They were saved by the power of God as they heard that pure and unadulterated word proclaimed faithfully. The darkness of their souls was penetrated by the light of the glorious Savior. And as that light dawned, they now saw Jesus for who He truly is, the all-glorious treasure of our souls. They saw it. The veil came up. They reached in faith to trust in Christ. Now think then, Eden Baptist Church, at what is at stake for us as we now have our time on earth to proclaim this message. What is at stake? And much of Paul's point here is that had he adjusted the message, had he used it for his own purposes to gain wealth, to control people, to boast in himself, had he altered it to fit cultural expectations, he would have emptied it of all of its power. And this is the danger for Eden Baptist Church. That we would empty the gospel of its power by altering the message and by operating without integrity. If we adjust the message to fit the expectations of the culture, if we stop preaching the Bible, we will lose the power of God for salvation. So we must remain, by God's grace, a church that proclaims God's words always in an open statement of the truth. A clear, open declaration of what God's word says. 
And I think then this calls us certainly to prayer. That we would be routinely praying for our fidelity to the Scriptures as a church. This isn't going to happen by accident. It's going to happen as we work together to protect that truth and to proclaim that truth. So let us pray for fidelity. Let us pray as well then for conversion. That people who come into the assembly while they are gathered with us and hear the Word of God proclaimed come to trust Christ as Savior. God has done this among us. Do we ask Him to keep doing it? Let us pray as well that in the conversations that we have, in the efforts that we put forward in our daily lives, that we will be pointing individuals to saving faith in Christ, that we will have opportunities to proclaim this message of Christ crucified and risen and take them. Let us pray for one another. We gather here on Wednesday nights as we pray specifically on Sunday night and Sunday mornings, as you pray privately, are we pleading with God to take this glorious gospel message and to transform lives? I I don't think I've met a Christian. I certainly haven't met any here that don't care about evangelism. But you meet a lot that don't pray about it. I don't ask the question often, but ask it. Do you actively pray that God will allow you to lead others to Christ, that he will bless this assembly by pointing people to saving faith in the gospel? Do we pray to that end? Are we asking him? Or is it that we have not because we ask not? May that never be the case. Let us plead with God to open the eyes of the blind. And of course, then, to actively proclaim that powerful word is so important. We need to do so trusting the Word, not trusting ourselves. When we speak the Gospel to unbelievers, we go as earthen pots. We're not special. We just carry a very special message. Never dismiss the power of the Gospel to save I mean, if you looked at the Corinthians, you'd say, man, they are going straight to hell on a slide. I mean, there, there is no hope for these people. But they were not hopeless. Not because of anything good that was found in them. Not because of something powerful and glorious in the people who delivered the message. But because there was something of surpassing power in the word of truth. When the Apostle Paul was traveling to Damascus to incarcerate Christians, no one ever thought he would become a follower of Christ. Even after he became a follower of Christ, people said he couldn't be a follower of Christ. Not that guy. Never give up on the gospel. And that means you never give up on a person. Paul was saved by this glorious light. The Corinthians were saved by this glorious light. And yes, they had their problems of sanctification. But they'd seen the light. They saw the beauty of Christ. So never give up hope that an unbeliever you know will be saved. Pray, bear witness, and keep praying. This word is the power of God unto salvation.
Let's pray. Lord, we plead in behalf of those who know not Christ that walk among us. We thank you for their presence with us. We rejoice when they are here. We do not know always who they are. but We know that you bring in week after week among us in this assembly those who do not see the beauty of Christ. They don't see the beauty of this message of salvation in Him. They don't understand that it's their eternal life that they're not grasping. We plead that you'd open their eyes. And I pray that as a church we'd never give up on anyone. For it simply shows that we put our trust in ourselves, our trust in man. Lord, may we trust in the power of your word. I pray that you would find us a praying people that are laboring with you to see the lost come to saving faith in Christ. And we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian believers. And we thank you for the example of people within this assembly who would be easily dismissed and written off as one who would never trust the gospel. Lord, we're reminded as those who seem most likely to do so have not. So we're reminded of your sovereign purposes, of your sovereign grace. And we plead, Lord, that you would allow us to know the joy of leading the lost to Christ, of proclaiming the gospel widely and faithfully and fruitfully. We long to see the transformation of this gospel in our lives. And I pray then as believers that we would follow you and serve you and that you would pour out your blessing upon this assembly. Again, for those who know not Christ, we plead that you'd open their blind eyes and how we rejoice in the songs that we've already sung today, how we rejoice to see the face of Christ spiritually speaking, to understand that He is the source of all joy and salvation and to know that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We praise You for that truth. And I pray for the future of Eden Baptist Church that we would ever stand true on that gospel. I pray that we would know that it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe and that we would never deviate from that trust. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.